Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And here we are, everybody. We are also out. Can you hear me okay here? My mic working? All right. Out on Clubhouse, (laughs) where uh, if you raise your hand, I'll bring you up to the podium. You can ask questions of our guests in just a moment. And, of course, if you agree to do so, you'll be streaming out on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, uh, all the platforms that are available. We are streaming. Uh, Today, we're bringing back Dr. Bruce Patterson. Any of you who has been with us through this pandemic will be aware that he... um, has been an important voice and researcher in terms of understanding and developing treatments for long hauler syndrome, uh, or whatever we're calling it now. He is the CEO of Incel DX, uh, developing new precision medicine paradigms for predicting, identifying, and treating long COVID. Uh, again, Dr. Patterson is the leading, leading one of the leading forces behind COVID long haulers that.com. And of course, Dr. Patterson is also a researcher on the effect of viral pathogens. He was very active in the HIV epidemic and unraveling that puzzle. And he's working together with Dr. Ram Yojendra, both of them. And Ram is on Clubhouse, so we're going to pull him up just so his voice can be heard um, because we couldn't have three people on the screen today. Except Ram is not on Clubhouse yet, so hopefully he'll get there. He said he is, but raise Uh, your hand, Ram. There you are. Oh, you have a different thing now. Okay, I see you. Okay, see you with the hand up. Um, and I will, so just I will, bring him up so he can Yeah, I'll bring you up in just a second here. Uh, and I want to introduce our second guest, who's a newcomer to the program, Dr. Eric Osgood, is an internist, hospitalist, academic hospitalist, uh, medical director of Mission Hospitals, St. Francis Medical Center. Oh, goodness gracious, my um, page just went away here. Hold on. That was weird. All right, there we go. Uh, he a uh, doctorate from uh, Tufts and uh, medicine residency at Seton Hall. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Anyone who's watched me over the years knows that I'm obsessed with Hydrolyte. In my opinion, the best oral rehydration product on the market. I literally use it every day. My family uses it. When I had COVID, I'm telling you, Hydrolyte contributed to my recovery, kept me hydrated. Now, with things finally reopening back around the country, the potential exposure to the common cold is always around. And like always, Hydrolyte has got your back. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity, my new favorite, starts with their fast-absorbing electrolytes and adds a host of great ingredients Plus, each single-serving easy-pour drink mix contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, 300 milligrams of elderberry extract. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity comes in convenient, easy-to-pour sticks that rapidly dissolve in water, make a great-tasting drink, has 75% less sugar than your typical sports drink. 
uses all natural flavors, gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, non-GMO, and even vegan. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity is also now available in ready-to-drink bottles at the Walmart next to the pharmacy, or as always, you can find it by visiting hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. Again, that is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E dot com slash D-R-D-R-E-W. Be sure to use the code Dr. Drew 25 for a special discount. Uh, Dr. Osgood and Dr. Patterson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Drew. Thank here you, you are. To be here. Good to see you guys. And let's bring our friend Dr. Yo in from the clubhouse as well. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of voices here today. Dr. Yo, how are you doing, buddy? Dr. Drew, good, good seeing you. Good hearing from you again. Get it on. Ram is an anesthesiologist who's been uh, very active in... Uh, how shall I describe your um, role with the uh, COVID long haulers? Are you a founder officially? I guess so. Me yeah. and uh, Dr. Patterson, Dr. Parikh, we're the uh, we're the co-founders and I guess co-medical directors, right, Bruce? And that's right. We've we've recruited uh, eleven uh, physicians. Dr. Osgood, one of them. Um, so we're and we got three clinical nurses. Uh, so. And we just tomorrow is our first day where we are doing our first telemed consultations in Europe, starting with the Spanish patients. Wow. So very excited about that. Very interesting. Sure. So where should we start the, the update? Last time we talked to you guys, we were talking about CCR5 inhibition. We were speculating about statins. Uh, where should we go? How should we start this conversation, Rob? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot, you know, we, we've now treated or actively treating over 2,000 patients in the United States. We've got over 12,000 patients registered in the United States in the program, and there are various stages, whether getting lab work, having gotten lab work, fighting for a telemedicine consultation with our team. Um, so we're really, really excited about that. And one of the things that we are starting to do is really understand long COVID, what exactly it is, um, and, and where more research and more, more answers need to come from. Well, one of the things is, I think in clinical medicine, and you probably agree with this, Dr. Drew, is, you know, sometimes we, you think there's a diagnosis and you jump into it and then you start realizing there are other, um, there are other issues taking place and, and there's no like magic drug or magic potion uh, or, or this uh, magic bullet or whatever you want to call it. Um, in clinical medicine. So we are now coming, we're, we've now, you know, Dr. Patterson and I and our team for over 12 months now, we've been researching this, um, two, two papers. I think the second one, I think Bruce will mention a little bit about it. It's kind of almost done with the peer review. So we're super excited about that. And one of the things we want to show is, um, you know, again, we, we're off labeling and repurposing things. It's sort of looking at tools in the toolbox that we have. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we want to do is to be able to study and put this in a in a controlled in a, in a randomized controlled trial and do some clinical trials. And and this is where Dr. Osgood has really has a lot of experience. I'm super excited about him on the team. Uh, he's so instrumental in that. Where what we want to do is to show what um what we're seeing clinically is that we can show this in a in a study design and control for all the other other factors and you know one of the difficult things when in medicine is if you don't know what you're studying right you don't know you, right. you can't define the parameters well, right I, I, what, it's, what's I, the trial like yeah i think you are you are swimming in the messy waters of a syndrome as opposed to a diagnosis right 
and you're trying to you're trying to nail it down to a diagnosis meaning a common physiology a common presentation but it's been such a new syndrome to have developed you're still swimming in the syndrome waters dr osgood how did you get involved with this group um yeah so i ended up meeting up with rom how did you and i start first talking i think we did a podcast together we really hit it off and um i think we you know we had a lot in common as far as how we uh, approach uh, disease and our, our clinical approach our clinical thinking yeah. and um he at one point he and bruce reached out to me to see if i wanted to join the uh, chronic COVID treatment center start doing some telemedicine with them um so that worked out well i've been working with them since about july and then um mm -hmm. we've been talking more and more about how we really need to uh to do a clinical trial a proper you know randomized blinded controlled trial uh without which yeah. you're not really going to get buy-in from the general medical community and you can never really know if your intervention is responsible for your patient improvement or if it's just this is the natural history of that's disease is it the placebo effect what have you um, right, yet there right. are obviously going to be a lot of challenges and uh, when you're in that syndrome those syndrome waters as you put it um, and you yeah. know you're, you don't have a, a really clear definition and parameters so that's where we kind of brainstormed mm -hmm. and I came up with a, a kind of a novel idea of how we could approach such a trial which I'm, I'm happy to talk about uh, tonight please let's hear it Let's do it. Let's, yeah, let's I'm, so, I'm going to get to Bruce to give me the whole. Um, Bruce, I'm going to have you bring me up to the present, but I first want to hear from these two guys, and then then I'll fill in the gaps, as they say. But go, go ahead, uh, Dr. Osgood. Yeah, a yeah. very proud for me where I can sit back and um, let, the, let the team yeah. talk for us. As Ron yeah, said, we've got three physicians to over 11. We've now launched in the EU. We're up to three clinical coordinators. We're going to continue to expand throughout uh, Mexico, Brazil, LATAM, and uh, you know as much of the world as we can. So, listen, I'm I'm sitting back here like the the proud uh, the proud father listening to <laughs> everybody talk about the program. But you know, I I just wanted to add that you know Eric's design of this trial was um, uh, was really uh, quite quite uh, innovative because. As I said at the International COVID Summit in Rome in September, you know, this virus is a chameleon. And I'll, I'll tell you, every single patient that we've spoken to has a different story, uh, different symptoms, what have you. And I think one of the biggest problems in COVID with getting treatments approved, um, not, you know, not to mention vaccines, getting treatments approved is having a properly matched placebo group. I mean, when, when everybody's mm -hmm. different, it's virtually impossible yep. to have a placebo that's matched, who doesn't get the treatment, yep. who's, who's in a similar boat, so to speak. So yep. I think that's yep. been incredibly difficult. I've never seen anything like it in medicine where um, that situation has arisen, that, that the patients are so incredibly different that, um, you, you can't match them. And I think Eric's design has taken that into account uh, and will be the first uh, CCR5 antagonist trial um, with statins, of course, that takes into account biomarkers and matching patients uh, appropriately. So I just wanted to add that in and you know, I'm happy to let Eric uh, expound on that. Yeah, Eric, I, I think I'm hearing Dr. Patterson say that Rather than look at the clinical presentation, you're looking at you're matching with biomarkers. Is that how this is going to work? 
Somewhat. Um, so my, a little bit of my background, before, after I graduated medical school, before I did residency, I spent some time in the pain clinical research world, uh, basically uh, phase two, so proof of concept uh, trials in the chronic pain world, uh, and also doing like psychometrics and, and outcomes and really trying to best design trials that are not going to fail. So we're really uh, looking at the, the, I guess, the construct of the phenomenon of clinical trial failure, uh, specifically in, uh, in chronic pain. Chronic pain is a very difficult uh, condition to study because a lot of the study drugs are only going to work on maybe 30 or so percentage of the of that particular disease population and then it is so prone to the placebo effect as well as to people maybe not being that precise or accurate in the way that they report and so there is a need often to do enriched designs or enriched enrollment designs in order to better demonstrate proof of concept and you know one of the things we really focused on was recognizing that seemingly homogeneous and sort of monolithic conditions are often consisting of subgroups and subclassifications based on sort of the mechanistic input of disease. So take something like painful osteoarthritis of the knee, one might think of that as a pretty simple monolithic condition where you have degenerative loss of, of, uh, of cartilage and you have, uh, you know, the, uh, the subchondral osseous tissue, which is heavily innervated, touching it, you know, uh, bone on bone, and you have pain and it's normal nociception when it turns out that uh, there's very little concordance between radiographic severity and pain and it turns out that there's patients with peripheral sensitization there's patients with wind-up there's patients with loss of normal diffuse noxious inhibitory control central sensitization and these different mechanisms of pain have very different sort of potential pharmacological targets where if you don't include the right patients you're not going to see any benefit and so you know when i started looking at covid19 and being a hospitalist in the hospital seeing how this disease presented and then later getting involved with chronic covid it became pretty apparent to me and I, I developed a pretty strong hunch that we were treating likely a very heterogeneous condition that affects different people differently and has different uh, mm -hmm. I guess pathophysiological inputs as one condition and I think that's led to a lot of the the clinical trials being all over the place like does tocilizumab work or it doesn't work does this drug work does this drug not work and I think it's because what we will ultimately find out what my hunch is that there are probably multiple subtypes of severe COVID-19 predominated by different yeah. pathophysiological mechanisms. And I think that's where I really found um, sort of a, a connection with the way that Bruce Patterson is, is approaching this disease because he's doing that both in long haul and in, in acute COVID. So when it comes to COVID long haul disease, when you look at biomarkers, not everyone's the same. You, you have different uh, forms of this, different ways you can land on the long haul index with different types of biomarkers that will respond to different types of pharmacology. So I looked back and I drew upon my, my experience in sort of the pain research world and found a lot of parallels to some of the challenges we might have in trying to actually study this in a randomized trial, where if we take sort of a traditional parallel arm randomized trial and try to put two groups together, likely the statistical power is going to be eroded by the fact that your, you know, your effect is probably going to be overwhelmed by the placebo effect in the placebo group. You're going to have maybe only 30, 40% of people in your active treatment group who would even respond to your treatment if it does work. And therefore, without doing a massively, uh, you know, powered study with a huge sample size, you're going to likely to have failure. And so one of the clinical trial designs that often gets used in, in the pain world is something called the enriched enrollment randomized withdrawal EERW study design, which I don't know, Dr. Drew, if you've heard of that. No, tell us. Yeah, so this is where you take sort of a predefined subpopulation that you're interested in in the disease model. So 
traditionally it would be chronic pain. Here it's going to be COVID-19. And we're specifically interested in patients with COVID-19 registering on the long haul index with a certain profile, such as elevations in C-cell 5 rantes, soluble CD40 ligand, you know, interleukin-8, interleukin-6, low CLCL4, what have you. And we're going to start them off in an initial open label phase where the entire study population knows that they're getting the study intervention. And what you do is after sort of a defined study period, you look at patients who start to develop a clinical response and actually start to feel better. Those patients then make it into the next phase of the study where they are then randomized to either continue on active treatment or go off onto a matched placebo. And what you're looking at is sort of a delta in effect size between do those patients in the active treatment arm continue to go on to do well and improve Do those who then go on to the placebo go on to do worse. And we're going to look at, you know, we have we still have to decide on what our primary endpoint is going to be. Of course, we're going to look at different sort of validated scales for different symptoms, uh, composite endpoints of, uh, of activity and pain, you know, look at accelerometry. And of course, we're going to look at biomarkers to try to further validate. And of course, the weakness of this design is going to be generalizability. Like what about the patients that don't get better in that? open label. The benefit is that I think it has the best chance to de- to generate proof of concept so that we can show an actual clinical effect in a properly randomized and placebo-controlled trial right. to then go on right. and potentially right. do further studies that are larger. Right. It's not, it's not the absolute best design, it, but it's a good design for f- d- mandating further study or suggesting further study. Bruce, no, you're nodding. Mm-hmm. Especially, Especially for... for you know, a heterogeneous group like this. I mean, Eric's right. I mean, you know, with with doing a, you know, a standard parallel study, then you're guessing at what your sample size calculation should be because you just, there's mm-hmm. so many differences. There could be, you know, eight kind of sub phenotypes, uh, if you will, that um, may have nothing to do with one another. And, and, and so, uh, I, I think this really does have the best um, chance of uh, succeeding um, using the, uh, you know, some of the uh, outputs that uh, and outcomes that uh, the NIH has already mandated for potential long hauler studies, which we have. And, and do we have any kind of standardized criteria for long hauler yet? Well, again, I think that's our published work um, that generated the long hauler index. <laughs> Um, that came out in Frontiers in Immunology. Uh, I think that was a good start. Uh, I think actually what came out of that paper was kind of two things that we look for at the Chronic COVID uh, Treatment Center, and that is number one, the long hauler index, which is really a composite of biomarkers that sets you apart from acute COVID, um, normal individuals, et cetera. Uh, And then in a moment, I'll comment on, on other similar diseases. And then, then of course, in addition to that, there's been this uh, recurring pattern uh, in our panel that suggests uh, vascular inflammation. And, you know, the mm-hmm. vascular inflammation is characterized by, you know, four different markers and, and that are separate from the long hauler index. And then, you know, about you know, eight months ago, we asked, well, why is there vascular inflammation in long COVID? And, and that's when we started investigating and we found persistence of the COVID S1 protein in monocytes in the absence of replicating virus in those cells. In fact, we did whole genome sequencing to prove that there was no um, full length uh, RNA or RNA that was capable of making virus, but it was persistence of 
of protein. And we use proteomics to, to really define that. And we've used that, you know, uh, on Lyme, fibromyalgia, um, MECFS. And we're just about to submit uh, an article that shows the similarities in these diseases, which have been uh, actually lumped together because they have similar symptoms, fatigue, exercise intolerance, brain fog, etc. So there was always this question, you know, six to eight months ago, well, are, are they the same thing? What are the similarities? Well, when we used machine learning and AI to look at the differences, they are indeed different. But there are, if you use a single algorithm to say, are they long haulers or non-long haulers, all of these register as long haulers. If you use two al the second algorithm, which is a, of all the inflammation, what's called a severity score, that's where you separate uh, acute COVID, long COVID, um, post-vaccination long haulers, MECFS, uh, fibromyalgia, et cetera. So we're very excited about looking into the pathogenesis of all those diseases that had similar symptoms, but now we're finding that there are some similarities amongst the differences uh, in the uh, immune system. Go, go a little deeper into that sorting. Explain what the differences are, if you can. So, um, I, again, I wish I had the figure that I could pull up. Um, where we overlay, so we have uh, on one axis, one, the y-axis, we have the severity score. On the x-axis, mm -hmm. we have the long hauler index, which are made up of different composites of these immune biomarkers called cytokines or, or, or chemokines. And the, uh, the severity index, which we use in acute COVID, which says how severe is the disease and are you going to become severe, um, uses, uh, it's more or less like six or seven of the 14 biomarkers we have in the panel. And then the long hauler index is made up of, of three. And um, for instance, MECFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, post-vaccination long haulers, which are patients who've never had COVID, who receive the vaccine um, and develop long hauler type symptoms. And again, this population is very rare. Um, it's a very rare side effect a vaccine. So we're not, we are absolutely pro uh, vaccine, but they, um, they do develop these, these immunologic abnormalities that resemble chronic fatigue syndrome. And then, um, then if you overlay uh, MECFS um, with true long haulers, they actually have higher long hauler indices than even long haulers, uh, which means they have a higher uh, level of what we call type 1 cytokines, uh, interleukin 2 and interferon gamma. Um, yet they all kind of register as non-normal and non-acute uh, COVID. So um, again, we'll be explaining a lot more in, in an upcoming uh, publication, but um, it's fascinating to see that these diseases that have very common symptoms also have some commonality in terms of their immunologic abnormalities. Which makes sense. Do you, do you have a sort of a hypothesis in your head about what the physiology is here? Do you have like a sketch or a favored kind of idea? Well, when, when we looked into the um, literature, and again, this is in our paper that should be out here pretty soon after peer review, um, we found that in post-Lyme, 
Um, it's very common for the cell wall of the Borrelia bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the best name in microbiology, um, is actually uh, phagocytized or engulfed like Pac-Man by these uh, monocytes that engulf monocytes. the yeah the s1 proteins in long COVID, mm -hmm. and so and then of course we also showed in this paper that um that these cells traffic all over the body including through the blood brain barrier and they cause blood vessel inflammation because why they bind to the blood vessels through another pathway called fractal kind the exact same mechanism uh, seems to be a play in uh, post lyme and the cells uh as you know also carry zika virus dengue fever virus and the intermediate monocytes are infectable by hiv uh, and then we showed in 2009 that these cells were infectable by hepatitis c so they are really a waste basket for um for dying cells and cells that may contain viruses and then they they process these proteins and uh either express them or carry them around the body and cause uh, uh inflammation so it's really quite amazing that the, the body is capable of doing that in the absence at times of replicating pathogen, which may be all totally who so I, I, innovation and in, hope in, you don't mind a, a bunch of basic questions here. I'm assuming these monocytes don't live forever, right? I mean, so they, why yeah. do they continue to have an effect or is that strictly the life duration of a monocyte that they have that effect? Actually, they normally they have a very short uh, lifespan on, on the order of a week. Um, but when when they're presenting antigen and carrying antigen, it blocks this senescence program so that they they don't die. But if you keep them from doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is in the case of non-classical monocytes binding to you know vascular epithelium through through statins, uh, they we they die off. And if we follow serially S1 containing uh, monocytes in long haulers following therapy with CCR5 antagonists and, and statins, uh, it goes down. It goes down with therapy over time and it's it's uh, accompanied by you know improvement in symptoms. It's been pretty remarkable to watch monocyte? that though. It, the the drop in the monocytes and the improvement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the clinical Go improvement ahead. since I joined the practice and yeah. actually seeing people, and a lot of times I'll follow up and I'll see they presented months and months ago, you know, they're, they're, all their cytokines are elevated, they're feeling terrible, and then they'll be in follow-up. They did, you know, um, a course of CCR5 antagonist statin, maybe a brief course of low-dose steroid or another, you know, immunomodulator or two, and then you see them in their labs largely normalized. They're feeling better. They can focus and concentrate. Generally, not back to 100%, but just markedly uh, different. And so it's it's been very um, been fascinating. And then actually, since I've been in the practice longer, I've actually got new patients who I've now followed for months. And then again, you start to see them. You see the biomarkers improve. You see the clinical picture improve. It's been a uh, very been very rewarding to be a part of that. And so, you know, getting a chance to now put that into a clinical trial um is uh, we're very excited about it so it's a big deal what what are you using for the ccr5 inhibitor we're using a Maravarac. drug called Maravarac, which is a um, drug made Maravarac or cell zentry yeah yeah yeah, and, yeah. And in fact, um, um, the, you you guys were messing with that early on you'd notice something with that or a signal with that 
so that that doesn't surprise me. And, and once again, what is it the monocytes are doing normally when they bind to the endothelium? What was the purpose of that? The it, it's really quite amazing. The non-classical uh, monocytes express this receptor for fractalkine. Their main job is to patrol um, the vascular endothelium um, for for inflammation, and and in <laughs> fact. Now all of a sudden they're carrying something that induces even more inflammation, and and what's what was really interesting in, in going through the literature on the latest paper was that when the non-classical monocytes bind to the endothelium, they release uh, type one cytokines, interleukin two and interferon gamma. Well, guess what? That's the numerator on the long hauler index discovered by computer. So. Um, it's it's very satisfying to see uh, you know at least this mechanism coming together and by by virtue of the fact that these patients have responded to therapy directed at that mechanism uh, at least gives us some uh, great confidence that that indeed is a major mechanism of, of of long COVID and as Eric said to see these people go from being bedridden to you know eighty five ninety percent ninety five percent better. Uh, has been absolutely remarkable. Uh, and of course, you know, if they have, you know, this inflammation affects nerves, sometimes nerves take a little bit longer to, you know, to recover, but, you know, to see them going about their normal lives, uh, actually exercising, we, we've had several in our program now, all of a sudden they're like climbing mountains and going on hikes and mm. playing with their kids and running three miles. I had one uh, one gentleman told me on telemedicine a couple weeks ago. He he was a little bit frustrated. He was you know he was pumping iron again, uh, but he can only pump iron three days a week instead of six days a week. And I said, Hey Arnold, still you know so and he was so great. Rams Ram sent over a, a graph. Did you see that, Drew? No, show me. It's can on you put your it phone. up? Yeah, on my I'm gonna phone. show it. Put it up. Let's see what Rom sent us a graph of. Oh, this is the scatter. Oh, yeah. Rom, this there is the long hauler index versus severity scale. These are the different syndromes and how they shake out. Right, That's right. Rom? Rom, you're, you put yourself on mute again. Do it the other way. There you go. Go yep. ahead. There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the that's a scatter plot that that Dr. Patterson was uh, referring yeah. to. We just mm -hmm. sent it over a couple of days ago. I think the the dark blue, right, Bruce, are the Emmy. CFS patients define define the MECFS for people. So again, you know, it, it's it's basically chronic fatigue syndrome. It's long thought to yeah. be caused by the chronic uh, herpes family viruses, EBV, CMV, varicella, herpes simplex, HHV six, uh, etc. Um, but it's the hallmark is fatigue, brain fog, um, you know, uh, shortness of breath at times. Uh, 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 exertional malaise, etc., just like a typical long hauler. So, what you see is from our paper that's about to come out in yellow, which is the or no, the paper that already came out in yellow, which is the yellow is uh, true COVID long haulers. The red yeah. are the po the red dots are the post vaccination patients who mm. never had COVID who have long hauler symptoms after three or four months. Um, on the far left, it's hard to see to the left of the vertical dotted line, but that's where the acute uh, COVID patients lie. 
And obviously, the higher up they are, the more severe their their immune systems are. And then, of course, in the lower uh, dotted line in the lower left-hand corner are uh, a bunch of normals and some mild to moderate acute COVID. So um, it's really fascinating how, you know, these different uh, aspects of not only COVID, but post-pathogen um, immune disorders are really uh, separating themselves out. They're similar, as we said, in terms of the fact that they would register, if you just did long hauler index, they would register as a long hauler. But using the two um, algorithms, you can see that the true COVID long haulers have a higher degree of uh, inflammation than um, the post-vax long haulers and the MECFS. And indeed, the post-vaccination long haulers, uh, two to four weeks of, of therapy, maybe six at the outset, re they respond very, very well, very quickly. COVID long haulers take a little bit longer, four to eight weeks, maybe some out to 12. Um, and, and so there is a difference in the response. And the MECFS is that those patients, which may be a completely different etiology, um, it, mm -hmm. and in, in other words, not involving S1, uh, also respond to Mirabarak and, and statins. So, um, you know, focusing on precision medicine and treating the immune abnormality uh, and then having that accompanied by symptomatic relief has been really uh, gratifying and a, probably the most gratifying part of the program. And, you know, it's, it's something that we continue to expand upon. Fibromyalgia will be added to this list and uh, we'll probably be looking at some point some of the uh, autoimmune diseases. Interesting. So I, I've, I have a feeling this research is going to open up a bigger topic eventually in that the, the lay sort of world is uh, awash with descriptions of inflammation being an important part of uh, health. And I, I've for a long time thought that what people were really talking about was vascular inflammation of some type, some endothelial something, because we were, mm -hmm. we were not talking about synovial attack by, you know, uh, mm -hmm. neutrophils. We're, we're talking about some sort of low level. And I, I've been had my eye on the fact that the lipid system, particularly the apolipoprotein system and, and insulin tended to figure in this as well seem to be something that added to this whatever this thing is we're starting to you guys are starting to look at this endothelial what should we call it what do we have a name for it yet endothelial inflammation you said vascular inflammation i don't think that's specific enough because that's like it sounds like a vasculitis but that's not what this is what is it endothelitis is, we've been using that term endothelitis, endothelitis. okay Okay, uh, but but you know certain genetic subsites, apolipoprotein metabolism, uh, you know the effect of monocytes on laying down uh, some of that inflammatory, you know, oxidized material. This is this is an important area of health. My, it's not surprised to me that the statin would figure into this. How do you think that's working? Uh, listen, I. I think Ram will agree, and, and probably uh, I think this is a little bit before Eric's time. But we um, we added a statin into our into our program. I would say, you know, February March of uh, twenty one, and uh, it was a real game changer. 
I mean, the the COVID long haulers they got they got better uh, quicker. They got the extent to which they got better was uh, was greater. And uh, I think it all had to do with the fact that statins are instrumental in uh, in reducing vascular inflammation uh, through this uh, fractal kind pathway, which I think, uh, you know, that's something we're also looking at uh, to answer the question, why do some people become long haulers? Well, you know what? Just like other uh, chemokine receptors, fractal kind receptors have polymorphisms, which are hereditary. Mm -hmm. They express different levels of receptors, much like a CCR5 receptor or other receptors. So they're looking into that as, as a mechanism. For instance, if you had a, if you had a, uh, some sort of defective uh, fractal kind receptor, maybe you don't get vascular inflammation and you're protected from becoming uh, uh, a long haul or something, uh, you know, from or post Lyme, for instance. So we've just we're just at the tip of the iceberg in really right. identifying how proteins can cause uh, immunologic disease. And you know, I, I remember probably 10, 15 years ago when the first uh, pan called gene chips, which had all two thousand genes on them, which we used at Stanford, developed by um, UCSF. We used it to screen patients. We had no idea where to start. You couldn't validate it ever for clinical use because you can't validate every 2,000 targets. But we used it to steer right. us in the direction of FDA-approved tests. And it was amazing what we found. And, but the fact is, during that era, and that was the genomics era, everyone just slapped everything on the gene chip. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to put it on the gene chip. You know, a lot of that was driven by the HIV pandemic. So one thing, having lived through now four, five pandemics and been involved in the research, what I've really noticed is HIV drove the molecular revolution in medicine and came up with great approaches to cancer where everything is precision medicine in cancer. You don't get a drug until they know that drug's going to work on you. And then mm -hmm. I think covid is really going to uh, uh, introduce uh, proteomics and immunology into our uh, into our daily lives in, in medicine, much like HIV introduced the the molecular revolution. So uh, and, we're getting and, and ready. Cytokines as as biomarkers. That's the other thing. That, that's a that's the thing that immediately started. Absolutely, immune cell subsets, cytokines. Um, all of it, and eventually we'll be able to, uh, uh, you know, put all of that into machine learning and, and, and come up with even more signatures of, of disease that are uh, immune-mediated. Ram, is that you? Echo what, what, what Dr. Patterson mentioned about the, the fractal kind. Um, yeah, that, was, that truly was the, uh, you know, a game-changer for many patients you know, it's very interesting. There are some patients that are, are contacting us from overseas, and, and there are long haulers or ones that are just having some post-vaccine um, symptoms, some persistent symptoms after the vaccine. And what was, it's very interesting is because, it, you know, they haven't gotten any lab work done or they're in a different country. Um, a lot of times the doctors will reach out to me, and, and I just tell them, just start them on a statin, a very low-dose, 
you know, pravastatin or torvastatin. And while it may not get them, you know, completely resolved, most of their in- issues, they do notice almost within a week um, some dramatic improvement in symptoms, especially the peripheral neuropathy. And the mechanism is if you look at the textbooks on the, um, of how these non-classical monocytes are binding, and, and as Dr. Patterson and Dr. Osgood mentioned about the fractal kind receptors, it looks like Velcro. Hmm. And they almost stick like vel. Yeah, when I remember looking at this, going, "Oh, this looks like Velcro to me." And and the way I describe it to my my physician colleagues and and especially to the patients, so they understand what's going on, it's almost like putting a piece of paper between Velcro. And what happens? It doesn't stick. Hmm. And these non-classical monocytes. Another thing I explain to the patients and the other physicians is that I look at it as garbage trucks, and they're garbage trucks with garbage inside of it. And if you put garbage sitting in a garbage truck for six months or 12 yeah. months or 18 months, what's going to happen? It goes They're bad. smell. Yeah, yeah it's going to go bad. You walk by and you go, oh, my God, it smells like crap. And the cytokine, the, the immune panel actually detects the smell in the long haul index. It's, it's almost like it's got a, this specific type of stench inside of it. It's like rotting eggs and, you know, dead rabbits or whatever is in there. And you go, oh, that's what it is. Whereas then there's a different immune pattern, let's say from MECFS or some other pathology mm-hmm. that we can then detect and use machine learning to, to identify that quote unquote smell. And uh, the way I explain it is that our goal is to prevent the immune cells from sticking and then to immunomodulate and reset the immune system because there is an, a dysfunction of the entire immune system taking place here. And that's the overall goal of the, of the, of the treatment. Well, it sounds like you also, you also want those monocytes to die out. they get their senescence, senescence back in, in gear. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's where the CCR5 is signaling. It's just, you know, like, like, like Bruce and I have been talking about on, on, on your show and many other podcasts, mm-hmm. it literally is the quarterback. Um, you knock it out. It, it's, you know, another thing I explain to patients, uh, Drew, is like, it's almost like if you were on a street fight, like you are on first and main street and you are about to get your butt kicked by someone. So what you do is you text Susan, you text, uh, you know, a couple other people and we're like, Hey, I need some help. So all your friends come in, like maybe Susan comes in with like a bazooka or, you know, Caleb is coming in with like a pocket knife. I like or machetes. The, oh, machetes. Right. Susan comes in the machete. So, so it's a local she, favorite. <laughs> well, I don't know what you guys are doing over in Pasadena, but mm, it's just Los um, Angeles generally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so so all of them come to this this fight, and now this one little fight between you and this other person has gotten worse, and that's really what takes place in inflammation. What a drug like Moravirac does, it blocks the text messages from um, from being sent out. So that yeah. text message you sent to Susan, she doesn't come. But more importantly, is that Susan doesn't bring the machete to the fight. So this is that whole downstream effect, because now not only are we blocking CCR5, you're knocking out the quarterback, you're knocking out the wide receiver, you're knocking out the running back. So it has this dramatic effect also on the vascular uh, markers or the vascular inflammation that's taking place and some of these inflammatory signals. And then that's where, where you're able to um, you know, decrease the inflammation and then, again, undergo apoptosis or program yeah. cell death of right. these uh, mo- non-classic the monocytes, monocytes. which is you want them out. But let me ask this. And, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple of uh, pushback questions. One was, uh, Ron, when we first got to know you, you were talking about CCR5 as it pertained to lorolimab, right? Yes. Is it possible that the availability heuristic cognitive distortion is affecting where you guys are looking 
And you had already, in other words, did you already have a predilection to look at the CCR5 system because of your uh, partic- your interest in Lamab? It just seems weirdly coincidental yeah. to me that we have Laurent Lamab and now we have Maverick, and it's both, you know, it just so happened that this turned out to be a very important piece of it. Or is it just that this was a very important piece of the cytokine physiology that you were picking up a signal on and looking at? Yeah, it, you know, I started studying CCR5 in the mid 1990s when it was a co receptor for HIV and, and have been working on it ever since. Um, we we looked. We were the first ones to identify CCR5, for instance, in the female genital tract as a um, as a parameter for HIV transmission. And so it, it's been, uh, and then also CCR5 on the variety of different immune cells, effector T cells, um, monocytes, uh, T regulatory cells, which shut off the immune system. So it's been, uh, yes, it's been a pet of mine, but it's been a pet of mine since 1996, right? So it really happened, and actually someone's writing about this. When I was in China the first week in January, uh, I was there to talk about uh, the immune system and some immune diagnostics that we had developed for CAR-T therapy in cancer. When uh, we Mm -hmm. started talking about the, quote, immune virus that was coming out of Wuhan, well, interesting story. I was about to go to Wuhan to visit a customer of Incel DX's the following week, which would be the second week in January. And they basically said, don't come. We're shutting down. And and then hmm. that precipitated even more discussion. And when I looked at some of the data um, from this, uh, quote, immune virus, uh, and then looked at some of the uh, cells and, and, and uh, plasma myself, that's when we saw this this predominance of of CCL5 or RANTES, in addition to elevated IL-6, in addition to elevated uh, VEGF. And, you know, it was a natural, well, CCR5, I mean, CCL5 and RANTES is elevated. Let's block it with CCR5, right? Which, you know, I was involved in some of the early studies of Maraviroc and Vicraviroc, which was Shearing Plow or Merck's drug and um, Icraviroc, which was GSKs. This was in the early 2000s when we were doing assays for um, for the other CCR5 antagonists. So it, it, it was something that was just like, oh, wow, these, these three cytokines, CCL5, IL-6, and TNF-alpha are elevated. That's just a setup for um, a CCR5 antagonist. And yeah, it happened, mm. you know, we, we had one that, you know, was, was right there, Laronlamab that was, uh, you know, going into clinical studies. We knew Maraviroc was around. We could always get that if we wanted to. Um, and um, that's where it all started, basically, was in, yeah, was in China. It's, so. it's that, that it is an important piece of the system, and it's, a, it, it, yeah. it's just, co- it's just coincidence, uh, serendipity that you happen to live there. Physician at a very, very prestigious university say, Why would you use a CCR5 antagonist? Um, they're immunosuppressive. Uh, and this is a viral infection. Mm-hmm. I said, Excuse me, they're not immunosuppressive, they're immune modulatory. And that mm-hmm. is the beauty of using CCR5 antagonists instead of, you know, potentially dexamethasone or other steroids. Is that they aren't immunosuppressive, and in fact, they they correct immune exhaustion, and you know that's why I think this is the next 
big wave in inflammation because we can actually modify the immune system without making you susceptible to other bacteria or fungi or some of the other things that just, you know, steroid blasting people with um, yeah. is going to make yeah. you susceptible. And that's my big fear in the hospitals. When I get called from someone with acute COVID, um, which I have a lot with Delta lately. And I said, you know, I know they're on dexamethasone. I said, that's uh, personally, I don't think that's doing them any good. Um, and I push for Maraviroc and statins because they're both FDA approved. And you know what? Even in acute COVID, uh, in acute, in acute COVID. Oh yeah. Why not? You know, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm, pathogenically. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the cytokines are elevated would respond to that combination. And so I always lose the Maraviroc battle, although some patients that they've ground it up and put it down NG tubes. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, I can at least get them on the statin. And there's actually a big paper that came out, I think, from uh, Mass General, showing the efficacy of just statins in acute COVID. Mm. Now, there's a safe um, and effective and uh, approach to acute COVID that has very few um, side effects. What kind of dose? Any, anyone, any statin? And what kind of dosing? It's, it doesn't take a lot. You know, we use 10 to 20 milligrams of statins. We're not trying to lower a cholesterol from 400 to 180. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it really it really doesn't take a lot to see a profound uh, effect on uh, on the uh, cytokine profiles. I have to take a quick break here, but I want to ask you one other quick question. It, last time we talked, you were toying around with the idea of sort of inflammation of the central nervous system, the elevation of the VEGF. And what, what happened to that little theory? Is that still part of what's going on? Or is, was that just an epiphenomenon that isn't, doesn't seem that important? No, I mean, the fact is, when you talk about blood vessel inflammation, and you talk about cells, mm-hmm. that's what's so interesting about monocytes. I mean, they're you know, you have this diversity of symptoms. It's not focal like a rheumatoid arthritis, you know, where you can say, well, I got to get to the mm-hmm. drug to the joint, right? It's everywhere. And mm-hmm. that just that just smells of, of a vascular uh, type of inflammation. And, and yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because what's key is when these non-classical monocytes bind to uh, endothelium, they also increase VEGF which is interesting, which causes peripheral neuropathies, which long COVID patients mm-hmm. have a lot, and it causes vasodilatation. Vasodilatation, mm-hmm. what does it cause? Headaches and migraines mm-hmm. and tinnitus. So mm-hmm. um, when you correct that, that's when you see a lot of that brain, and they say, oh, I have this pressure in my head. I've had so many patients, this is, this is the call sign for long COVID. Mm-hmm. And when someone yeah. goes like that, you need a long hauler. That's index, true. I do right? kind of like. I felt the fog. I felt like, more in here, like the fog. No, you, have, you have long COVID. No, you, no, no questions <laughs> asked. Because they feel this pressure, yeah. and the pressure obviously from vasodilatation, yeah. and then the headaches, and then the migraines, and and when you relieve the inflammation, a lot of it just goes away. So it's like the Levine sign of long break. COVID. Right, right. <laughs> or it's like... <laughs> so, okay, guys, I'm going to take a quick break here. I want to, this is a fascinating conversation. I've learned a ton already. And I it's, didn't it... get the joke. 
there are things you do that are classical moves like and this and this and in medicine they each have their own name and now we have the long COVID sign which will be the patterson sign so <laughs> so okay, okay I, I get it now so uh, thank you uh we'll take a little break be uh, right back with more of this after this I want to give a shout out to our good friends at Blue Mics. If you've heard my voice on this show any time over the past year, including right now, you've been listening to Blue Microphones. And let me tell you, after more than 30 years in broadcasting, I don't think I have ever sounded better. But you don't need to be a pro or have a fancy studio to benefit from a quality mic. You may not realize it, but if you've been working from home or using Zoom to chat with friends, you probably spend a lot of time in front of a microphone. So why not sound your best? Whether you're doing video conferencing, podcasting, recording music, or hosting a talk show, Blue has you covered. From the USB series that plugs right into your computer to XLR professional mics like the mouse or the Blueberry we use in the studio right now. Bottom line, there's a Blue microphone to fit your budget and need. I can't say enough about Blue mics, and once you try one, you will never go back, trust me. To take your audio to the next level, go to drdrew.com blue. That is drdrew.com B-L-U-E. All right, we are back with Dr. Yo, Dr. Patterson, and Dr. Osgood. Dr. Osgood, back to you for a second, if you don't mind. Uh, this is all very interesting physiology, and I'm guessing as a hospitalist, it has sort of informed and changed some of your approaches to COVID. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, we, I mean, pretty early on, we started giving statins to most of our, our inpatients, um, and we saw pretty mm -hmm. clear signals this was helping. Uh, you know, we... Um, Pretty early on, we were giving, uh, we were actually giving methylprednisolone as our steroid of choice. We were doing really D-dimer targeted uh, full dose anticoagulation early on. Uh, really, some of the intuitions we had early on were, you know, were, were pretty vindicated. Some of the other things did not, you know, necessarily turn out to, to be borne out by the best evidence. But I think overall, our protocols have been good. But, you know, really uh, giving your attention uh, to each individual patient, treating them individually, following biomarkers, as well as their clinical status has really been uh, the most successful approach. Want to take a quick shout out and just uh, g give uh, some recognition to the unsung heroes of the pandemic in the hospital, the medical residents. And I've been privileged to be part of a teaching program with some excellent medical residents without whom we, we really could not have uh, accomplished what we did during the waves of the pandemic. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I, as somebody who did my residency during the darkest hours of the, of the AIDS epidemic, it's interesting how these disease-specific, well, they're pandemics, uh, affect our training and, and our outlook going forward. Uh, you know, in, in HIV and AIDS, oh my goodness. I mean, that was such a, uh, we, we were in a war with that illness and, and people were literally being torn apart by it uh, and yeah. just struggling to come up with something. It was, it was like being a, a surgeon at the turn of the 20th century with only limited things yeah. to be able to do and, and just struggling to find stuff. Yeah, it's quite a time to be in training, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I hope I hope it gives them a sense of of uh, you know desire to be very careful in their thinking and to be research research oriented in their practice and to be able to improvise and use their judgment in situations where things look look rough. I mean, a lot of a lot of what we've done has been the result of improvisation. I mean, Dr. Yo and Dr. Patterson were had some ideas about how this might work and started applying it and lo and behold it did i mean if if you hadn't tried these things this, this is the part about this pandemic that i have found astonishing that people 
have been unwilling to try things that might work that were based on good hypothesis, good physiology. Yeah. And and you guys did, Bruce. Yeah. Well, you know what? I It wasn't easy, and it's still not easy. I mean, I've talked to, like I said, a number of hospitals and um, and listen, hospitalists and uh, incentive, intensivists uh, are under the gun, and uh, it, it is, it's unbelievable what they're doing. But, you know, it, it, part of it is they don't have time to think about what you're proposing and what, you know, and, and, and they, or think about it mechanistically. And, mm-hmm. you know, and what they don't realize is that, for instance, if you used our severity score in acute patients uh, and you had a, a reasonable turnaround time of, say, a day to get your results, not only would that allow you to manage the patient better, but it would allow you to manage your resources. What they're not right. recognizing is when you don't know where the patient is on this immunologic continuum, you have no idea what the prognosis is. You don't know where they are immunologically in, in the cytokine storm or on either edge of the cytokine storm. And the problem is they're thinking about, you know, the next patient who is coming through the ER who is just as sick and needs a bed. And I get that. Mm-hmm. I completely get that. But we have, you know, what I insist uh, to them is that you have to take care of that patient right in front of you right now. And mm-hmm. you need to do the best possible job on that patient. I know there's patients waiting. Of course there are. But, you know, and it's hard. I mean, sometimes they have to make difficult decisions about who gets resources and who doesn't get resources, especially in, I would say, February 2020, when I was uh, collaborating with physicians in New York City uh, and doing some of our initial studies on acute COVID they had to decide who gets dialysis and who doesn't get dialysis because the early COVID was really affecting kidney function and, and multi-organ mm-hmm. function for that matter. Um, but the fact is, you know, what they really need, and I've been talking about this, I spoke about this at the International COVID uh, Summit, is you need to correct the immune system and time. The problem is in it, and I just read an article that mimicked some of our early patients in 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 2020, where a patient was intubated and they were just about literally minutes away from pulling the plug, and all of a sudden came to, and you know a few days later was out of the hospital. You know what? There's never been a disease like this, and I saw that a lot when we were using um. Uh, CCR5 antagonists under EIND in the February, March 2020 timeframe, where um, you could get them home. You could get them off uh, ventilators. You could get them off ECMO. We've got five patients off, which is basically, you know, lung bypass, right? But what they mm-hmm. were given, the ones that did leave, was time. And you corrected mm-hmm. the immune system with the CCR5 antagonists, and they needed time. And in fact, ECMO was great because it gave their lungs, didn't have to do their normal jobs. All they had to do was repair themselves, right? Or allow, you know, the inflammation to subside and, and allow right. the, the 
recovery to happen. You know, the problem is we don't have the luxury of time um, when there's just masses of people flooding the ER. And I, I, I get that, but that demands a different approach. Uh, and if that approach is restore the immune system to normal as quickly as possible, then that's what has to be done. There's a time element here. And, and then also something like a severity score that can tell you where you are and how to manage those resources. Who maybe you can, there's a, some people in this severity score who were clinically severe, whose immune systems were almost normal. You could, you could put them step down from the ICU. Okay. Or conversely, someone with mild to moderate clinical symptoms who had a completely disastrous severity score and immune system that was very stormish, probably needed a step up. But that's how you could manage resources better while doing what's best for the patient. Um, yeah, it's very Ron, difficult to try to... Go ahead, I'm finish, uh, Eric, please. Finish your thought. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it, yeah, when, when someone is in the process of crashing and you're worried about PPE and you're worried right. about, you know, you know get, gowning up and all that, it, it gets very difficult. So being able to stay one yeah. step ahead, uh, it would be incredibly valuable. And then, Dr. Drew, one thing you mentioned I really wanted to kind of expand upon, you mentioned kind of the rigidity of, cr of clinical thinking during the pandemic. And um, nobody thinks that it's appropriate to do anything until, you know, flawless randomized trials has sort of spoon feed us conclusions about drugs when and I mean, we seem we seem to have forgotten that. I mean, the majority of clinical practice guidelines come from very imperfect studies. There's different grades and strengths of clinical recommendations. A lot of what we do, especially in infectious disease and in hospital management, are based sometimes on retrospective studies, sometimes cohort studies. And it's it's been a shame to see this kind of new zeitgeist of this just incredibly rigid protocolized approach to medicine. It's unbelievable. It's it's the biggest shock to me of this entire pandemic. It's absolutely shocking. And, and I've witnessed uh, firsthand a massive difference between those of us in on the medical side versus the surgeons. The surgeons improvise. The shit goes down in the surgical field. They got to figure it out, not wait for a randomized controlled study. And early on, my surgical colleagues were trying all kinds of stuff. That's where I learned about things and how things were happening. The internal medicine side froze in place. I think it's because a lot of people are employees and were or have clinical pathways in their hospitals that they're required to follow. It's that's a catastrophe. People want us to use our judgment. That's why you see a doctor. You don't need a doctor if you're just following a protocol. You don't need us. Right. Just tell somebody yeah. else do that. We we're trying. No, we are trained to use our judgment. When you don't know what to do, that's exactly where you want somebody making decisions that are that are yeah. uh, that are improvisational. That's just what you got to do. The public is counting on us. I, to I don't do know. That. That's shocking to me. Shocking to me. It was yeah. sh disgusting and shocking, Bruce. As, as, and as what, long what? as we're still following the do no harm, you know, uh, mantra that we all carry, I mean, you know, yeah. it's you, why not be innovative? That's, that's the hallmark of, of everything that we do in life is, is to be creative, to be innovative. That's why we became doctors. And then, but to be just a USB drive and being plugged, plugged into some system is, I, for me, you know, when the book is written about this pandemic, uh, for me, that, that's going to be my last chapter is 
that, right. you know, despite the creativity, despite innovation, you weren't allowed to be creative and innovative, you know, and, and, and that's with, with FDA drugs that have a, have a file on them, on their, on their safety, and you can't repurpose them because it's not in some protocol uh, that, like Eric said, that's been in some massive, you know, randomized control study where you don't get results for 18 months. How does that help you with your, your current surge in, uh, in cases? It, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, listen, so we, 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 Hollywood, Hollywood and the public valorized the D Dallas buyers clubs. What do you think they were doing? They were just improvising, trying stuff. Now, the part of the story they didn't tell in the movie is they got in the way of actual treatment ultimately. And I had a ton of patients die because of Dallas Buyers Club, but we were supportive of them when there was nothing else to be done. People were trying yep. things, try something, try stuff. Yep. And uh, this pandemic, the exact opposite. It, and it, it, I hope I hope you will name that final chapter. I, the 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 in the biggest shock of the panda the, the what shocked me the most was was our behavior in this uh yeah. rom i was starting to ask you um something what the hell was i getting into for you uh did you, did you could you tell where i was going um no, no you couldn't tell um there's 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 something actually i want to yeah. mention and i think it really maybe ties everything together because you you and you and Bruce and Eric were discussing about acute COVID um, and obviously a little shift from, from long COVID. They, they kind of, you know, there's a lot of things that we're, we're picking up with long haulers and, and long COVID that I think really can, you know, ties in a little bit with, with the acute phase of the disease. And one of the things, you know, we're seeing is this immune dysfunction in a good majority of the patients. But, and it goes to that the first question you asked, one of the earlier questions you, you posed was, you know, do we have a, a consensus or a definition? Mm -hmm. And even now, look, some people call it long haulers, long COVID, chronic COVID, PAFC. I know. I know. You know, when we, we don't even have a consensus on what the pathology or, is. Or it whether it exists. There are people that insist so what, that it doesn't exist, which I'm here to exactly. tell you as a long hauler, it exists. It's very well, unpleasant. So when you don't, when, when there's still a discussion, we're still trying to define everything. And what Dr. Patterson and our group have done is really identified that immune dysfunction. But that does not mean that this is the end all be all. Right. This is the word of God. Right, this, right. The clinical of medicine doesn't work that way. No. And one of the interesting things that I'm sort of picking up, and like I said, this is from looking at over 2,000 patients now, is there's a certain percentage, I think it's probably anywhere from like 10 to 20% of the of quote unquote long haulers they're probably not dealing with an immune dysfunction. These are patients, I just personally think, they have, a, they have some damage done during the acute phase of the infection. Yeah. These are ones that, whether it's neurological, respiratory, um, cardiac, or any one of the other systems in the body, the acute phase of the of the virus or of the disease caused destruction. Yeah. So we're talking about something a little bit different than the immune dysfunction. Now, a good majority though of the of the long haul, and I would probably say like 70, 80 percent are what we've discovered with that immune dysfunction and the S1 protein and whatnot. And that goes back to the clinical management and exactly what Eric or Dr. Osgood was talking about with the clinical design. If you enroll those patients that had acute destruction and don't have an immune dysfunction, the trial is going to fail. Moravirac and statin are not going to work for them or any of these therapeutics that we're we're sort of looking at. 
Right. Because for them, there's something else that's going on. Um, anyone in clinical medicine that says they have 100% success rate should be selling used cars. So, you know, so what this is allowing us to do, this clinical insight we have, is to really start to understand the pathology. So you've got a certain group of patients that, and I say this, and I'll bring up one particular case. I'll try to keep it as general as possible. This is a young woman that got definitely had an acute case, um, had definitely had COVID, a very mild case of COVID, started to develop neurological symptoms, um, back pain and head, really severe headache and, and migraines while she had COVID. This was about day three of infection. Mm -hmm. very, very common, back, by the way. That's a very common, very common symptom, yeah. She then started to develop, you know, she said, like, after she got over this acute phase of COVID, she started, you know, it just persisted. And we looked at her cytokine panel. She was normal. Mm. She was on a clinical trial with another medication, didn't respond. We had her on Maravrec, Ivermectin, mm -hmm. Statins, uh, Colchicine, you name it, she got it. Mm -hmm. For weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, immune profile was always normal. S1 came back, negative. What exactly is going on? We work, and this is the other thing people always think about what, you know, Dr. Patterson and me and the rest of our team, they just think it's like Maravrec or bust. Like that's all these guys. We're interacting with hundreds and hundreds of physicians in the United States right. and now globally. And again, it's what you told me several months ago. It's about physicians don't talk to each other. And I, I, I always tell you, Dr. Drew, I, take it, I took it to heart. Good. And they really have implemented that where it's a close collaboration and, and we're working with different researchers. But we, we had this patient work with a neurologist who's got a lot of experience with MECFS and a lot of chronic illnesses. And there's a, there's a test called a NeuroQuant. Uh, and it, it actually measures sort of the brain volumes and uh, it's almost like an MRI. I'm not mm -hmm. too familiar with that. But mm -hmm. she had this patient, this young woman, young woman, she's 28 years old, who had a neuroquant. Her brain scan, and she shared these results with Dr. Patterson and myself, she looked like an early Alzheimer's patient. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I, and, I've seen other illnesses do something like this. And I've always thought it was vascular related. So it, it's literally, it's a lot of it's glial cell dropout, but it, so it, recur, it, it comes back, but it, it, it can also be irreversible. Well, we've also seen- And you know, then it's a question of what- What's that, Bruce? We found, we, we looked at, um, with uh, Dr. Lalazari and, and his father, Dr. Lalazari, we did a, a, a pilot study in Alzheimer's where we took brain homogenates and ran our 150 biomarker panel and found that um, interleukin-18 divided by, you know, interleukin-4 actually told you if you were mild Alzheimer's or severe. So, you know, hmm. the inflammatory component of Alzheimer's is very predictive uh, and very yep. interesting. And I it's truly a part of um, you know, the pathogenesis. Interesting. That makes perfect sense to me. I, I've never thought the plaques had anything but sort of incidental or consequential sort of. They're, yeah. they're, it's like looking at gliosis and saying the scar is the problem. It's like, hmm, I'm yeah. not so sure. Oh, um, Ram, I remember what I wanted to ask you. How's your friend, the anesthesiologist that I spoke to doing? Tom's, Tom's doing well. In fact, um, as Dr. Patterson sort of mentioned about um, you know, we, we're actually, someone is actually writing our story. It'll be several months. And it's not about us. It's really about the whole program and how all these, all these amazing people and how we're, we're slowly transforming medicine. And Tom is doing well. Um, I actually just sent him a text message because his story 
kind of is the reason why I ended up, you know, meeting Bruce and really looking at this and from the whole acute phase of the COVID. He's he's doing wonderful. Um, I'm really excited um, to say that he, you know, I don't want to say he made a full recovery, but he's about 90% of where he was, um, still has a little bit of a foot drop. And um, but again, from where he was um, 51 days in an ICU mm. to where he is now, um, it's pretty remarkable. But, you know, Tom was um, Tom was so instrumental, um, I think, just changed the trajectory of my life if it weren't for him. And and wow. unfortunately, getting sick, I would never have met Bruce. Isn't that incredible? I would never have wow. brain, you know, had all these brainstorming sessions for several months mm. uh, and formed COVIDLongHollows.com. Wow. The whole concept would never have started. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I can't even, you know, put it into words how, um, you know, how that changed my life. But wow. it, it changed all of us. I mean, changed Dr. Pat. I think he would probably yeah. agree. Like Dr. Patterson's yeah. life changed the Eric. Everyone well, by the way, for me, Primer, Bream, it's all the stuff I've been complaining about for the last 20 minutes, but it's been the one bright spot in terms of, for me, physicians doing the right thing, do, doing what we're, we're supposed to do, what we know how to do well as scientists. I, I, have a, I have to wrap up pretty soon. I have a couple of random questions. Somebody was asking, given that vascular dilatation is a feature of the monocyte uh, function, uh, can uh, PD... PD now my brain this is my covid brain the pdf5 inhibitors the the things like viagra or cialis are, are those yeah. inadvisable yeah. Uh, in post-covid pde5 well, pde5 you have to be careful with something that dilates blood vessels you know and yeah. people you know they they have temperature you know insensitivity both hot and cold and and they're like oh my 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 fingers are numb and my toes are numb and or they're swollen. They're oh, everything's always well. You know, all of that is vascular dilatation. So, you know what? Yeah. Um, I'd be careful with them while you have long COVID. Like like exercise, we can bring them along slowly. And mm -hmm. I never say never. We'll, we'll get them there at some point. But let's take care of what's causing the bad vasodilatation. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, I think I also have, I have a fantasy that as a result of all your guys' research that we're going to learn about how tremendously different the cerebral vasculature is, or the endothelium is in the cerebral vasculature. I've always kind of thought that. And, and I bet you're going to uncover a lot of interesting, unique qualities in the cerebral vasculature. You agree with that? I mean, I think oh, we're going to learn a lot about there are, Bruce. the effects of um, yeah. the blood-brain barrier in, in these conditions. Right. Yeah, that maybe right. it may be just permeable as well. So we'll see. Susan, I've yeah. lost my image of uh, my friends here. I hope it's not. I hope that's not what's going out. Yeah, we're good. Okay, uh, gentlemen, I got to kind of wrap this thing up. I, I could. This is you know, this is uh, nerding out for me. I could kind of keep going. I can think of a lot of other things I'm interested in. One, one last thing. Uh, fluvoxamine was something on the radar last time we spoke. Is that just off now? It seemed to have helped me quite a bit. Somebody already on a statin. Curious. We like yeah. we're using a lot of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of it yeah. still, yeah. So that oh. that Sigma One system is, is a is a feature of all this. Interesting. Yeah, as you see, how, how long? Just to, how, uh, Eric, how long do you keep people on it? Uh, again, we really let the clinical course um, 
drive. We don't really necessarily have any hard endpoints. We um, we start to taper people off when we feel like they're ready. And uh, generally, people do not want to be. You know, people are not big fans of polypharmacy. These are a lot of patients who have never been on a right. medicine, no past medical history. Yep. They want to get back to their lives. Yep. They don't want to be taking medication. But if you withdraw the therapy too soon, they can rebound. So we really keep a close eye on the biomarkers and we keep a close eye on the clinical progress. And when it's time to, time to start tapering, we do it. So it's it's there's really no one size fits all. I, I was I was really asking about what pertain, pertained to fluoxamine as, as it pertains to the inflammation of the brain, and, and we were talking about Alzheimer's and the inflammatory component of Alzheimer's and whether we're going to see some dementias down the road from COVID and maybe some longer... I've been ruminating whether or not a longer-term fluvoxamine on a low dose would be something smart in people that have a long hauler. I, I That's a very, very, very distinct question. I know you guys aren't looking at that, but any any thoughts? I push, I push long-term, you know, statin use just, and, I, and I'm also pushing statins for people when they, uh, when they get the vaccines, because I think it's a non-immunosuppressive way to just add a little bit of extra protection, you know, to the, to the blood vessels if needed. Interesting. Uh, and finally, my last question, uh, Bruce, any thoughts on the risk to pediatric populations? Can we, does anything keep you up at night there? We can't really give them statins. You can. So um, you can. we are okay, seeing a lot can. of, yeah. And both, uh, there's great studies on Maraviroc in the pediatric population, which makes it unique amongst CCR5 antagonists, and also um, atorvastatin has been shown in clinical studies to be safe for use in kids. Mm. So, yeah, and and indeed, we are seeing a huge uptick in uh, the number of kids with long COVID or PASC. Yeah. Gentlemen, We're thank ready. you so much for, first of all, for joining us, uh, and more importantly, for all the work and the diligence and the ongoing work. And Eric, it's such a privilege to talk to you and to know you're part of this team. Um, I, I agree with Bruce that your your addition is exactly what the kind of what what the what the doctor ordered, so to speak. And um, I just look forward to. I mean, so much has changed since the last time we spoke. It's really kind of interesting. The last time we spoke, you were sort of saying, "Well, we found these S1 proteins in these classical non-classical <laughs> monocytes, I'm, and we think that might have something to do with something." And uh, and then you you were sort of. We were also talking about CCR5 antagonists, and you were like, I just got a hunch there's something going on there. And I can't really say it yet, but we think there's something. This is a lot different now, a lot different, and I'm sure it'll be different next time we speak. So uh, please do keep it up, gentlemen, and thank you for joining us. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank always. you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And um, Rom, you're still there on uh, Clubhouse. I'll say goodbye to you. Thank you for bringing these guys to me, and uh, as always, being such an important driving force in all this. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Thanks to you and, and Susan and the rest of your team for, you know, the, the the support that you know that you provided us. But I think mostly, most importantly, the the support and a lot of the advocacy you've done on behalf of the patients, um, the long COVID patients, patients having post-vax issues, many other chronic illnesses and, and pathology. So I'm very grateful for. Uh, your support, you and Susan, all the work that you're doing, and thank you very right. much. We're we're doing the light lifting. You're doing the heavy lifting, and we appreciate it. So, uh, Ram, I'm going to end the clubhouse room. Thank you guys there, and thank you, Ram, and thank you everyone who patiently listened to us. Uh, and for those of you out there, tomorrow uh, we have uh, Dr. Lucy McBride, and Dr. McBride is a Harvard-trained physician who has been uh, publishing a, a 
she's been doing with the newsletter what I've been trying to do with this streaming show. And she's smart. She's got a lot of interesting ideas. I just want to pick her brain a little bit. We have Dr. Bhattacharya in here on Wednesday. You know him well. He's been on this show before. Again, another brilliant person. Alex Berenson, who is the uh, the eternal gadfly to the to the COVID uh, uh, sort of response, the government, the COVID response. And then on Tuesday, that's on Monday, Alex, then on Tuesday, Dr. Vinay Prasad, I was listening to his uh, podcast. His last three podcasts, last four podcasts have been on fire. Oh, my goodness. I, I recommend them so highly. And his, his latest one is talking to a... A virologist, uh, uh, vaccine expert, about vaccines and kids and the, the 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 things they're worrying about and having an honest discussion about this. And it's these last four weeks have been the best sources on where we've gone wrong, what our concerns are to be, how monolithic our our thinking has been, and the kinds of trouble we're likely to get into as a result. So we got a lot of really good people coming up. And, uh, and we're all heading into Thanksgiving, so we will uh, let you go across the Thanksgiving holiday. But we have uh, Lucy McBride tomorrow and uh, Bhattacharya on Wednesday. And Susan, anything going on with you? No. Nope. I, I, uh, I got to uh, share with the Restream people and the Locals people. We were on a local stream before, you, before we heated up here with the streaming show. And I told them they were all very much uh, impressed with your mom's house live on Friday night. And I told them that you, you nearly threw up in the car. We were playing it in the car. And Susan had to do everything in her power not to vomit. I'll be talking about that more on After Dark because there was a lot of hysterical corollaries I want to save for the boys. And Christina, if I can get her in there too, because they were the source of the uh, extreme. She found it funny. It was. I was. It was horrified. A, I realized that's why Tom invented this thing, was to torment his wife. I, I think that's what this was all about. But that was a particularly um, tormentful oh. uh, live, live uh, YMH Live. Well, we were driving for an hour and a half from Pasadena Laguna. Yeah. And I said, oh, I, ha I paid for it. Let's, Let's watch, watch it. it. Let's go, we'll, <laughs> Let's watch my live. And, and I thank God I was driving so I didn't have to look at I it. I glanced Christina, once in a while. I love that Christina was throwing up. She had to throw up too. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, and that's, I think, I think Tom did too. Tom will, Tom will start to lose it all of a sudden. But I, I, I really think it's to torment his wife. That's why he started oh this out. Oh, my God. Yeah, Susan was particularly, was it the brown or the vomit or which one got you the most? Uh, do I have to talk about it? Yeah. So That's why I said this was this all about. I can't really talk about it here, right? I can't say what happened. We'll get canceled. Okay. But was it, but was it, people were, at, the locals folks wanted to know, was it the brown? Was it um, the vomit? Probably yeah, the, the brown, right? A lot of the, yeah. The was, brown. Yeah. The combo, yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. The vomit and brown. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's uh, your mom's house where I have There's a show. There's a lot called, of it. Right. <laughs> Have a show called Doctor After Dark. We needed which, some jokes in. Let's between. just say it as a di very. She kept going. She going so soon. Caleb, quit dicking around with the thing. It's on the second screen. Okay. I'm trying what? to fix He's it. Trying to bring. It's oh, over on the it. second screen now. D don't Go worry about it. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, good. We're gonna, I'm going to wrap up anyway. But <laughs> I, I just want to say I accidentally that, like hit a button somehow yeah. and. The screen went away, and he's been moving it around, so that's why it's okay. Lost. All I see is the have a conversation. But, I know. Well, I, I'm trying to change the subject. But bottom line is, um, I didn't realize how disgusting was that. Yeah. Actually, live in front of an audience? Yeah. Oh well, no, no, it was alive in front of a, a live audience. Because I know like they've us. done them live, live. No, no, but, no. That's different. That's very different. Yeah. That's that's a, your mom's house. I didn't you know, think so. In a, in a theater. I love how 
I love how Joe started out with, oh, I can't believe you guys do this. And he goes, I'm so proud of you, though. Yeah, Joe Rogan. For, for making, yeah. you know, making this your thing. Right. It was, it was like, very funny. And then he got into it. Joe? But but the the bottom line is uh, very different emphasis than the uh, the time you've just spent with me. Very very different. Oh, one hundred percent. That's sort of what I like about all these different things I do. They're very very different. One eighty, yeah, definitely. Carol and I are different. Uh, the one I do by myself over there is different. This one is different. After dark is different. They have different sort of. Uh, Cultures and qualities. Let's just. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this thing up. I will see you tomorrow. Cultures tomorrow. And tomorrow and Wednesday are at three o'clock. Those ones on your show. Three o'clock. Really, the next. Yeah. The next four at three o'clock Pacific time. So we'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock with Dr. Lucy McBride. See you then. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.